read the word of God one more time. I'll pray for us and then I'll get us into our sermon. Genesis 6, verse 11 through 22. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with the lower, second, and third decks, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, and which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping, uh, every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. You may be seated. Uh, the title of this sermon will be Preserving What Matters to God. Preserving what matters to God. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for um, giving us the ability to worship you this morning, for waking us up, for allowing the roads to be clear for us to get here. Those of us who are not here for modern technology to be able to stream this into our home so we can still worship together as the church. Lord, we are in a world that is moving faster and faster every day we are alive. And one of the things that we can get lost in is the pace of the world. So I'm praying today as we talk with our youth and as we uh, preach to our youth and as we preach to the whole family, Lord, that you would teach us what needs to be preserved in order for us to still be the witnesses that you've called us to be in such a fast-paced world. Uh, so God, be with me. Let me speak only the words that you have called me to speak. May you increase and I decrease. May you hide me behind the old rugged cross. May your people be fed. May those who do not know you be engaged. And will you pique their interest as you pull them closer and closer to you, as you initiate a relationship with them through your love and through your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray and we thank you. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's start this off with a little question that I have for you. I want you to take out whatever writing device you have, whether it be an iPad, an iPhone, if you are still old school pencil and paper, and I'm going to give you three words, three words in their definitions. And what I want you to do is I want you to put these three words in hierarchical order of how you see them and how you believe the world should see them. The first word is innovation, something new or different introduced, the act of innovating introductions of new things or methods. That's the first word. The second word is preservation. The act or process of keeping something in existence, 
the act or process of keeping something safe from damage or deterioration. The third word is elimination, to remove or get rid of, especially as being in some way undesirable, to admit, especially as being unimportant or irrelevant, to leave out. So with those three definitions, I want you to take the word innovation, preservation, the words innovation, preservation, and elimination, and I want you to rank them in order of importance in how you see them in your life and how you believe the world should see these three words. What should come first, what should come second, and what should come third? I give you about 30 more seconds to do that, and then I want us to watch this video and we'll start the sermon. Innovation, preservation, elimination. Rank them in order. Let's go ahead and look at this video. Pass it, pass it. Yes! That's how it's done. You want to play one more after this? Yeah, one more. Yeah, I mean, actually, that was the first time I got my heart broken. Well, she didn't deserve you, Vic. Well, that got deep all of a sudden. <laughs> Bit nippy out. So what? Right there. We got him. Yeah! yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Oi! Keep it down! No! You keep it down! Sorry, neighbors. I know. I can't stand mine either. Where were we? Winning. Oh, so yes. Let's get back to that. It is definitely a commercial that made me laugh the first time I saw it. Uh, but after laughing at it and looking at it multiple times, I began to see some form of message underneath it. Uh, you see, humanity has always had a problem since the beginning of our days that there's this hidden lie in our hearts that God has not created the world good enough for us in the way that we believe we should live in it. We always think that there's something missing. We always think that there's something out of place. And if you are a reader of the Bible, you can see that this happened early in the scriptures within the first chapters of Genesis. In the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, verse 4 and 5, it says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Uh, right there, the serpent, the created serpent, and the created human were having a conversation, and the serpent is saying to the human that God left something out of your life when he created it that he didn't order it the right way, that he didn't put you in the right place. And if you are going to live a fulfilled life, what you need to do is you need to take God out of the center of your life and place him somewhere else so you can have control of your life and you can get everything that you want. But what the serpent did not tell Eve is that as soon as you take God out of the center of your life and you place him in any other position of your life, you now have enmity with God and there's a conflict in your relationship. So I know I hear some of you asking, well, what in the world does that have to do with the video we just watched? Well, if you notice in the video we just watched, we see these two men, two grown men, might I add, playing a video game. Uh, but this video game is not just any video game. 
This video game is a video game that consists in between two worlds. It consists in between the material, the physical, and the real world, and then it consists in this virtual reality world. So what they are doing is they are standing in the midst of the physical world, in the real world, but their eyes have this headset on that places them in the midst of a virtual reality world, and they begin to live this new experience. Now, how it used to be when I came up with video games is that you would sit and you would look at the video game and the TV and you would have a controller and you would know you were sitting in the real world and that was a fake world in there. We never thought that Super Mario Brother and Luigi were real. We never thought that King Cooper was real. We, were, we had a separation of reality in between the worlds that we lived in. But it's not so here because in this virtual reality world, if you did not notice, this world begins to redefine certain things. It begins to rearrange certain things. It begins to give different definitions than what God has given. The first thing it redefines is reality. And reality no longer just sits out here that you can actually enter into a new world where you believe you can touch things and you can feel things and you can see things and you can build friends that you think are millions of miles away. But in that video, we're right next door. Now, what happens many people don't know with virtual reality is what you are actually doing is you are buying, buying into a lesser thing. That what God created us to have, exactly the human brain, is actually more advanced than any computer that can ever be created. Listen to what it says here in the article about virtual reality. It says that our brains build on past experience to develop rules by which to interpret the world. For example, the sky tells us which way is up. Shadows tell you where light is coming from. The relative size of things tells you which one is further away. These rules help your brain operate efficiently. But virtual reality, reality developers take these rules and try to provide the same information for your brain in the virtual world. In an effective virtual environment, moving objects should follow your expectations of the law of physics. Shading and texture should allow you to determine depth and distance. But sometimes when these virtual cues don't quite match your brain's expectations, you can feel disoriented or nauseated because the human brain is much more complex than even the most sophisticated computer. And scientists are still trying to understand which cues are important to prioritize in VR. So what happens is they believe the lie that games on the outside in the physical world aren't good enough. We need to go into a virtual world. And in this virtual world, we call this innovation, that things are getting better, that this is better than anything that we can experience out here, but really, it can't get any better than the brain and the reality that God has already given us. Stick with me. I'm going somewhere. Just stay with me. The second thing that is being reshaped in the commercial is friendship and community, relationship and intimacy. Did you notice that the video says your closest friends are ready when it talks about entering into the virtual world with the headset? But in the real world, they don't say anything to one another in the elevator. In the real world, they don't greet each other. In the real world, they have no relationship. In the real world, they are not friends. But did you notice at the end when they put their ears to the wall and they begin to scream at one another, not knowing that it's one another, they both come back and say, neighbors, I know, I hate them too. So this virtual world has taught them to ignore the people who live right next to them 
and get on a headset and befriend people who are miles away in a fake world, it has mixed up the primary and the secondary. So why does this make sense for the text that we are reading today? Because some of you who are 30 and above, this may already make some kind of sense to. When the world experienced innovation in our day, innovation was built on the back of tradition. That means things only got better, but we still tried to preserve the core. At least we tried to preserve the core of what it was, no matter if it was marriage, if it was relationships, if it was church, if it was how we spent money, if it was restoring an old car. We wanted to preserve some kind of tradition. But with our teenagers, they live in the world where tradition is not the value. Innovation is the value. And what happens is you are behind if you are not always creating something new. If there's not a new filter, if there's not a new app, if there's not something new that I can click on, we always need something new in the new world. And what happens is we have a gap in between our generations where one teaches someone how to preserve and the other teaches the other about everything that is new. So what are we supposed to do as believers in a world that is moving so fast? What does the gospel call us to do? What are we really supposed to care about? When we hear the three words, innovation, preservation, and elimination, which one should be most important to us? Well, I'm not going to answer that for you right now, but I will tell you when we get in our text, our text has one big idea. That God calls Noah to preserve what is important to him, and then God destroys humanity because they have corrupted what's important to him. God calls Noah to preserve what's important to him, and then God destroys humanity because they have corrupted what's important to him. And we look in verses 11 and 12, and we get our first point. We are stuck with the problem. Here is the problem in the text. When humanity is left to itself, no matter how smart we are, destruction looms at the end. Now watch what it says in verse 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. Now, the earth was corrupt. This word corrupt means that it was ruined, that it was spoiled, that it was mauled, that it was desecrated. The earth was corrupt, and it was filled with violence. So here, if we don't read the passage carefully, we think that violence is the root of what the author is saying. But what the author is saying, he says, no, 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 no. In any civilization, when violence has become prevalent, that violence is an end-of-the-road symptom. Mm. What came first was all the corruption that happened before that. Mm. And this word violence means that there was wrong, that there was cruelty, that there was injustice. But what the passage doesn't tell us is that Whenever we corrupt something, it doesn't mean that we're always trying to do something bad. That all humanity has to do to actually corrupt something, all we as humans have to do to actually corrupt something is just believe we are in charge of it. That it belongs to us. That we can do with it whatever we want to. All humanity had to do to corrupt the internet was just believe that we were in charge of it. That we should use it for what we want to use it for. And that's why when you watch documentaries like Social Dilemma, you see people who were in the forefront of creating, uh, you know, apps like Facebook and Instagram won't even allow their children to use them now because they said we've corrupted this thing and we've messed it up. Mm. 
And so the problem is that humanity, what we do is we think with our brains first and our soul second. Think about it. Think about what we tell our kids about youth, our youth about school. We're always worried about if they're smart, if they're smart, if they're smart. Are you intelligent? And being smart is not a bad thing within itself. But when do we ever ask about the morality of what's going on in school? Are you being kind? Being respectful? Are you being courageous? Are you being loving? What about those things? Well, how we're trained in the brokenness of our flesh as humanity is we always think with intellect first and morality second. But what God does is he thinks with morality first, with righteousness first, and he thinks with intellect. Well, he does it at the same time. But morality is more important. What's right and wrong is more important than God, than advancement. And so what happens when we think with our brains first and we don't think with morality and we don't think with morality first, we create things and all we think about is the good, but we don't think about the bad. We say, hey, I'll let my kids who are 10 or 11 years old get on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat, but I'm not thinking about what's going to happen when people don't like their pictures. I'm not going to think about what's going to happen when somebody begins to tell them things about their image that they should not be experiencing right now. I'm not going to ask myself or pray to the Lord and ask, are they ready to be on such a thing like that? Are they ready? Because there's a whole world living behind there. I'm not going to ask myself if they're ready yet. And do you know that Facebook and Instagram have heavily contributed to the suicide rates amongst kids, tweens, and teenagers. Because when I get on there, I'm not pretty enough. They don't like me enough. I'm not popular enough. And these are things that are moral questions that we need to answer, but instead we have not given them the foundation to answer it. Let me give you another one and how we create for uh, intellect, but we don't think about morality. If you bring the first picture up for me of this Apple device right here, there's been a lot of controversy over the Apple, Apple device. So our PowerPoint, I, the picture is not available, but you can look it up on the internet. It's called an AirTag. Apple has come out with a new technology called an AirTag, and you're supposed to be able to put it on your products, on your book bag, on your bags to be able to track it if you lose it. And I can't believe that all these smart people in the world are sitting in this meeting and saying this is a great device, and they never thought once, what happens if this gets into the hands of somebody who's evil? Uh, now the story about Apple AirTag is that people are buying them, and they are slipping them in people's bags, and they are taping them to people's cars, and they are stalking people and following people. And this technology has now been used for something that is corrupting the world and not for something that's making it better. Could it be because humanity thought with their intellect first and not their morality? But what God calls us to do is says, I don't want you to think what makes the world better when it comes to technology. I want you to think what makes the world better when it comes to righteousness. I want you to think what makes the world better when it comes to purity. I want you to think what makes the world better when it comes to love. I want you to think with the lens of the cross before you think with the lens of the rest of the world. And let me tell you, the reason why the world thinks like this is because we value products and we value consumerism more than we value people. We value money more than we value our inherited identity. 
We value going after all of these things, and we put the things that God cares about most to the back. But that's the problem. Humanity has corrupted the earth. Humanity and the earth is filled with violence, that end symptom that we've corrupted the world so much that all we have left is to fight against, to harm against, and to cheat one another. But then there comes the plan on how God is going to handle this. Look in verse 13 for me, and God said to Noah, with me, and God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, something doesn't match up here for me when I first read over the scripture. I say, well, God, if humanity is corrupting itself and the world is filled with violence, then why don't you just let them go until they destroy each other and there's no one left? Because humanity would get to that point. If you just let them go, why don't you just let them destroy? Why do you have to step in and destroy people? Why do you have to step in and put an end to this? Because there are four things that God is trying to let us know. Actually, five. Number one, when God destroyed the earth during the flood, he pronounces his ownership over it. And he says, well, if I let you just go ahead and destroy yourself and do your thing and I step back out of it, I become a passive owner. And it might send the wrong message that you own this and this is yours and you can do whatever you want to with it. I need to step in and let you know who this belongs to. And what happens is I've given you something to steward and you're not using it the right way. All my teens at home, I need you to know that our lives are something that need to be stewarded, that they were given to us by God for a certain reason. They were given to us by God to bring glory and live a purpose out that we cannot use them any way that we choose to. I know what the rest of the world might be doing. I know what some of your friends might be doing. But what you'll realize by the end of this sermon is that God has placed us in the midst of a corrupted world because he wants us to preserve and point to people what is right. All the reason why God destroys the earth here is because he's the standard bearer. He says, I've created a standard in how this place should be. I created a standard on how you should live here. And when you do not follow the standard, it is my prerogative, my right, and my responsibility that I do not let you believe that the standard does not be accomplished, needs to be accomplished, so I need to hold you accountable. And so what happens is, he says, listen, your corruption has gone against everything that I stand for. You have gone against my standard. You cannot be here any longer. The second, the third thing is he must let those who have caused this problem and this corruption know that there is a higher power they must bow to. God will never be so much of a friend to us that he will not remind us of his lordship. His lordship is always important that we need to have a relationship with God that is Lord and servant, that is one who looks up to God and is obedient to God. And that's why I love what the passage says in, in the scriptures. It doesn't matter where you end up at the end of your life. It doesn't matter if you end up a believer or a non-believer. The scripture doesn't say only believers will bow and confess that he is Lord. It says every knee and every tongue will bow and confess that he is Lord. The only option that we have is if we are on the side of those who have been saved by him or on the side of those who have refused salvation. Here's another reason why God decides to destroy the earth and doesn't let humanity just do it themselves. 
we look at these things to save us, and he shows us that they only can fail us and lead to destruction if we put them in the wrong place. Have you ever been in a situation like that? You thought that something was so valuable in your life. You thought that something was, was so good that it, had take the pla- it took the place of God. It became an idol that you worshiped. And what God has to do is destroy it. And he has you go through some pain while he's destroying it because he needs to remind you that that thing can't save you. That that thing's not supposed to be worshiped by you. That I don't care what the world is telling you. You need to keep certain things in certain areas where I have placed them because if not, you begin to worship them. Just think about in Exodus, the golden calf. And Moses and them go up to worship God and get a word with him. And the people are so busy downstairs that they can't down the hill, that they're down the mountain, that they can't stay still. They need something to worship. So what do they do? They take all their jewelry off and they put it together and they melt it and they make a golden calf. And they begin to worship this calf. And when Moses comes back down the hill, God is enraged and Moses is enraged. And as they are worshiping the golden calf, God makes these people take their swords that they have, tie them to the side of their waist and just run back and forth till they chop each other up. I know it's gruesome. But what he's trying to tell them is nothing else besides me deserves worship. When you begin to worship other things, you lead yourself to a place of destruction. And then the last thing that he shows them is that it was meant to be stewarded. If we steward something wrong, then it will begin to rise up against us and give us the opposite effect of why God created it. God never created the earth for humanity to corrupt it. He never created the earth for humanity to rule over it without him at the center of it. God never created the earth for that. He never created our lives for that. And if we begin to treat them like that, they will rise up against us. There's another illustration I have on how this happens in everyday life and something that we may participate in, and that's clothes shopping. Do you know that clothing brands do the same thing? They remind you that it belongs to them. They remind you that they are the standard bearer. They remind you that they are giving it to you to steward it, to keep their name alive. And when you don't do that or when they feel as though it's not used right, this is what they do. Do you know that clothing lines, when they create clothes, if they don't sell them all at the end of the year, instead of taking them somewhere, especially luxury clothing lines, instead of putting them out for a discount price, they take them and they burn them. All right, 2019, 2020, Burberry burnt $35.4 million of clothing. You see it up here on the screen. Uh, Amazon burns its products. Nike burns its products because they say, you don't get to decide the standard of where our products go. You don't get to decide the price point. So before we put them in your hands and have them lose value, before we give them to you and allow you to pay for them what you want, we'll burn them. No matter how many millions of dollars, if it doesn't get sold, we'll burn them. Why? Because we're protecting our reputation. We're protecting our price point. We're protecting how they integrate with your life. We're protecting the place in your life that they hold. So before Burberry goes on sale and the luxury is taken away from it, we'll burn it. It's the same thing that God is doing. He's saying, my my earth that I created for you is, is, is too expensive. It's too nice. It's too good. And before I allow you to corrupt it, I'll destroy you in it. That's what he's saying to them. But then we get on to the third point, the process in which he decides to do it. 
It teaches us something about how God views those who are in loving relationship with him versus those who are not. Now, this is the long part of the passage, verses 14 through 21. Look at what he does for Noah. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out of the pitch. This is how you are to make it. And he gives them all the directions on how he is going to make it. And what God is doing is he's preparing Noah, even though Noah doesn't know how bad this flood is going to be. What God says is, look, Noah, I know exactly how bad this is going to be. He says, no, I'm Gary, act the fool. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you exactly how to build this ark. Don't mess up on one direction of this ark, or you might end up like one of them, Noah. I'm going to tell you exactly how to build this ark. Why? Because I need to send the message that I protect that which belongs to me in the midst of a corrupted world. That this flood is big enough that it's going to destroy the whole world. That this flood is going to wipe out humanity. But Noah, what I'm going to do is when I put you in the midst of this ark, when I put these animals in here, when I put your sons in there, when I put their wives in there, I'm going to send a message to the rest of the world. When you come out of the ark and humanity is all wiped out, there's going to be a message that echoes throughout time that God protects those who he loves. And no matter how bad the world gets, no matter how unpopular you may seem at school, No matter how many times people ridicule you for being a believer, no matter how many times your standards are looked at as being foolish because you love Jesus, God says, little one, don't worry. I'm not saying you're going to get out unscathed. Some of this stuff is going to hurt you, but at the end, you'll be protected. God gives them the dimensions, the materials, how they should build the ark, because he says you are going to be able to. To survive this flood because you are loved by me and have value by me. And I'm always going to protect what is righteous in the midst of a corrupted world. But then God chooses this process of the flood for another reason. So a big question I asked when I was reading this, I was saying, well, God, you created the earth the first time and everything in it. And you called it good. But you're going to destroy humanity And when you destroy humanity, you send a flood, and all you do is you allow this flood to subside, but you leave them with the same world that the flood of... Why didn't you just recreate another world for them? You can do it. Mm -hmm. Why don't you just... look? When you flood my stuff, God, I want something new. I don't want to have to rebuild the old stuff. Like, God, why didn't you just, like, re-give them a whole new world? What I believe I see in the text is God has to let them know that what I created the first time was good. There was nothing wrong with it. That means I don't need to recreate good. I just need to reestablish good. And what I'm going to do to reestablish good is I'm going to get all the corruption out of here. And I'm going to let people know who come that this world was good the first time I created. There's nothing wrong with how I created it. The only thing wrong was how you corrupted it. Teenager, let me talk to you for a minute. There's nothing wrong with how God created you, but the world will try to get you to enhance your beauty, to do different things to yourself, to not be satisfied with the identity and the beauty and the soul and the spirit and the the personality you have. They will tell you you need to be different, but don't do it because you'll get down the line and you'll realize there's nothing wrong with how God created me. The only thing's wrong is how I corrupted me. My daughter's eight years old and she's into fashion. And um, 
she loves makeup. And she says, Daddy, can I get a makeup kit? And I say, no. She says, but why not, Daddy? It's just makeup. And I said, sweetie, I need to be satisfied that you are and that you enjoy your natural beauty before you start to use things to enhance it. Because makeup can tell a lie. For some people, makeup says, well, I already know I'm beautiful. I'm just putting a little bit on to show my best features. For others, makeup says, I don't believe I'm beautiful. So I need to paint stuff on me to make me look the certain way that I wish I looked. And if you see now in the phenomenon, my young ladies, my teenage ladies, is all in the world. Makeup has now moved to body enhancements. It's nose, it's lips, it's face structures, it's different parts of the body that I don't believe I'm beautiful in the way that God created me. So I need something else to do to create myself. And gentlemen, you aren't far from it. The other day I saw somebody, a man, getting a man wig. You can be bald. And go into the barbershop and they can paste some stuff on your head that look real and they give you waves. And they can give you a beard if you don't have it. And you can look the way you want to look. And I said, I don't know, brothers, what you're doing out here. But listen, with my flaws and all, God created me just fine. Don't fall for the lie that God missed out when he created you. God created you good. You just have to give him the lordship to reestablish and define what good is for you. What God does in this end of this passage is he not only tells them that I am going to protect you because you are a part of my righteous community in the midst of a corrupted world he does doesn't only tell them that the world that i created is good enough we just need to reestablish the, the the supremacy of good what god does is he shows them what they need to preserve uh, look at this in uh, verses 18 verse 18 through 21 he says to them but i will establish my covenant with you my loving agreement with you. That's what covenant means, my loving bond with you, my loving promise with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons wives with them. The first thing that God shows them to preserve is family and marriage. God says, I'm keeping what is important to me. I'm keeping the things that Humanity has corrupted, but they will outlast those who corrupt them. Family and marriage is the first thing. He didn't just say, Noah, bring your sons and leave their wives. He didn't just say, Noah, bring you and leave your wives. He didn't just say, bring, 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 bring you and your sons and leave everybody else behind. No, he brought family and marriages together. He says, I'm going to preserve this. The second thing that God preserves here is if you see... And of every living of things of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive. They shall be male and female. Noah, bring your sons and their wives. Bring animals. Bring male and female. Sexuality and gender means something to God. It doesn't just mean something to God because he wants to be all in your business and he wants to determine who you like or who you love. It means something to God because he sees that this is the way that the world shall be populated and fulfilled. This is the way that I want to create. That is not something small that they just put it in there. They could have told us to bring animals and not bring male and female. That's in there for a reason. Watch what he says. 
to, uh, to Noah, according to his kind, two of every sort shall come in to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten. God wants them to have sustenance and store it up. Shall serve it as food for you and for them. Now watch this in verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. He keeps in preservation the relationship between man and God. You see, the Bible says that Noah did all that God commanded him. He didn't grant God a courtesy. He didn't do God a favor. He didn't help God out with a business plan. He didn't do that. He wasn't a friend that he just decided to help move. You know, I'm just helping God move. He's going to destroy the earth. You know, he want to keep some things. I'm just helping him move these things from before. No, Noah did what God commanded him. If you hear a message that says God is anything but your master, but your Lord, but your savior, but your king is a message that you need to throw out of the door. That God still believes in authority and hierarchy. He's going to do it as a loving savior, but he'll never give his position up as king. As we close out, I was watching a movie that you can see on Netflix was kind of funny and a little scary at the same time. It was called Don't Look Up. And if you can bring that last picture up right here, this is the end of Don't Look Up. What Don't Look Up is about is these scientists find out that this uh, this meteor is six months away from Earth. The distance that it is will take six months to hit Earth, but it's the kind of meteor that can destroy all living things on Earth. This is the apocalypse. And they go through trying to warn people, and they warn people about this that is coming, and people don't believe them, and they do what Western Americans do. They try to make money off of it at first, but then it's coming true that the world is coming to an end. And at this table, if you put it back up for me, everybody sitting around this table was a part of those who were telling the world that it's coming to the end. Now, what struck me about this movie is that we as humans believe we want so much I got to have this. I got to have that. But when the end of the world was coming before the meteor hit, all they decided to do was sit down and have dinner together. Mm-hmm. It was the simple things of life, the community, the intimacy, the family that God had placed in life since the beginning. They just said, we're going to sit down and have dinner together. And at the end of the movie, they're having dinner and the table begins to shake violently. And then before you know it, the end of the world is coming. But what the end of that movie showed me is that the world will lie to you and believe that you make you believe that you got to have it all. Mm-hmm. But there's certain simple things that God wants you to preserve. He just wants you to preserve family. He just wants you to preserve community. He just wants you to preserve friendship. He just wants you to preserve spreading the gospel. Do you realize that God has always preached this message throughout the book of the Bible? All you have to do is preserve the things that I've entrusted you with, show them to the world, and let me do the rest. Mm -hmm. If you don't believe me, let me take you to the cross. In the book of Genesis, the flood was the line between those who were preservers and who were corruptors. Mm -hmm. In the New Testament, the cross was the line of those who were preservers and those who were corruptors. Why do I say that? Because God's uh, immediate direction to his disciples after he had died and had rose again was teach all of the world 
to obey what I have taught you and what I have shown you. Go therefore throughout the world and make disciples. He ain't tell them to create nothing new. He didn't tell them to go out there and create the computer. No, 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 no. Remind people that everything they need for life is already here and it's in the word of God. And if they would follow this, I'm not saying that innovation is wrong. I'm not saying that it's bad within itself, but it can't be that what leads us to believe that it fulfills life. So my teenagers, what am I calling you to do? I'm asking you, are you a preserver or are you a corrupter? Will you preserve those things that God has given you to follow? When your friends are going through hard times at school, instead of you telling them to get on social media and talk about it, will you say, can I pray with you? Because uh, I realize when I'm going through hard times, the number one thing that God has given us is to pray. Uh, when somebody says something wrong about you, will you lash back out on them or will you preserve the standard to show love to your enemies? Will you be nice to them? Will you be loving to them? Will you care for them? Will you really try to figure out what's going on? When, when the world is saying that there is no God, will you preserve the message that Jesus is Lord and Savior of this world and that he can save our souls and give us a peace that we've never had before. So what I'm saying to you, my younger generation, is that you can not only be concerned about the new thing, mm -hmm. that your responsibility as a Christian is to take care of the old thing. That the old thing doesn't need to be made new. And this is what we find out about the power of the gospel. That the gospel definitely has to be preserved. Because if the gospel was continuously innovated on, it would become like the world. It would be a dying document that's corrupted. But God made it perfect in the first place. He made it good enough for the human soul in the first place. He showed us where salvation is in it in the first place. And all he says is, I just need you to keep this thing, this thing. I just need you to show the world what this thing is. Yeah. I don't need you to make it relevant. I don't need you to make it popular. I just need you to live by it and show people that it's authentic, that it is the true way to finding what life really is, that it is the true way to finding out who God really is. And so when we're interacting with such a fast-moving world, don't always go after the new thing. Yeah. Begin to think about the new thing. They say, is that something that God intended us to have? Or is that something that humanity created believing that they are God and they can decide which way the world goes? And are they throwing out all the stuff that God wants us to have instead of keeping the thing that God really wants us to have? I don't think God wants you to have friends inside of a computer. I think he wants you to have friends where you can sit at a table with them. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think God really wants you to worry about how many likes you can get on a picture that you put up that you spent all day trying to figure out how you were going to pose and make sure the background is right. I just think God wants you to go out there and live authentic and be yourself. Young men out there, if you're going bald early, I don't think God wants you to go get waves put on your head. You just got to find out if you're going to keep a little bit of shave it all off. Let's not fall for the lie that we have to keep up with the world, but let us be the moral compass of the world. Now, there may be some of you out there who have heard this message and you are on the corrupting side right now, but you say, I want to be a preserver. 
Maybe you're watching this with your friend. Maybe they invited you over to see this and you say, listen, I don't want to live that life anymore where everything has to be new or everything has to be this, where I have to lie and where I'm corrupting my identity and who I am. I don't want to be that. I want to be on the side of preservation. Well, we can welcome you in to the kingdom this morning through the power of God. And I am going to pray for us right now. And as I pray for us, at the end, I'm going to tell you where I want you to pray this prayer. So let me pray for us right now. God, thank you so much for the message that was just preached. Of what needs to be preserved. What needs to be kept in its place. And I know I asked the audience in the beginning to write down the order of the way that they would see the words. And if it was my order... I would say preservation needs to be number one. That the problem with humanity is not that the world was not good enough when it was given to us. The problem was it was not good enough when God created it for us. The problem was that we thought we can make it better and we started making new stuff that the world didn't need. Uh, So instead of innovation being number one, I believe that preservation should be number one. Uh, We should preserve what God said we are in his word. We should preserve our identities. We should preserve the thoughts that he has towards us. We should preserve the love that he has given us. We should preserve the way that he has told us to live. And then the other thing, if you ask me, Lord, what would be my number two would be elimination. That daily as a believer, we have to eliminate the lies that come into our minds, eliminate the lies that come into the world of who we ought to be. No, God, you are the only one that tells us what we ought to do and who we ought to be. And we need to eliminate the distractions in our lives to make sure that we can get to a place that we pray to you and that we sit with you and that we preserve our relationship with you. So we're not walking into the world blind to the schemes that Satan has for us. And then, Lord, I believe that innovation has its place, but I believe it's last in line. That when something needs to be made new, God, you'll lead us and show us how to do it. That when something needs to be advanced, Lord, you'll lead us and show us how to do it. But you'll show us how to do it in a just way, in a righteous way, in a moral way, where it won't destroy the world, but it'll actually make the world better. But the world we live in, Lord, believes totally different. They believe that innovation is number one, that they need to to continuously put their supremacy out there. Look what we can create. Look what we can do. It's the Tower of Babel all over again. But will you keep us through that? And for those who do not know you, Lord, but desire to know you today, I will ask that they would pray this prayer with us, that they would simply say, Lord, I admit I am a sinner. I am a corrupter. I am the one that you were seeking to destroy in the flood when you saved Noah. I am that right now. But Lord, I need and want your forgiveness. Will you forgive me for the sins that I've committed? Will you forgive me for the standard that I have broken that you have set? I accept your death as penalty for my sin and recognize that your mercy is a gift that you offer to me, not because I've earned it, not because I've deserved it, but because of your great love. It's not based on anything I've done. God, will you cleanse me and cleanse me and make me your child? By faith, I receive you into my heart as the Son of God and as, as, as my Savior and Lord of my life. From now on, help me live with you, watch this, in control and in lordship of my life. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 
teens out there, preserve what matters most to God and show the world that he still reigns. Well, amen, amen, amen. Thank you, Minister Greenfield, for that powerful word. What really was astonishing to me as I listened is that the very creators of these media platforms that we allow our children to readily have access to, the creators prevent their own children from having unsupervised in encounters with social media. We are living in the days of Noah. 